Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. A lot to talk about this morning with Jeffrey Yu, investment strategist at UBS Wealth Management, who joins us from London. Morning, Jeffrey. Good morning. Let's start with, with that dollar strength and your sense of how long that's, that's going to persist. Again, we're looking down the barrel here of a, a transition to a new, a new presidency here in the U.S. How is that going to affect things? Uh, we do think um, that it pretty much you know, should have run its course against several of the develop, um, um, against several of the developed market currencies like sterling and euro, for example. Um, we are going to get to a point where politics aside, uh, the Fed is going to be looking at this again, saying, "Okay, we thought we had a good inflation profile, but the dollar looks a bit too toppy right now. Is that going to affect our inflation profile?" And the moment they signal that it will be doing so, then I think we're going to see a dollar reversal. So um, I would, you know, hold things a bit before saying right now this is going to be uh, the onset of another dollar surge, um, even after the recent moves that we've had. A headline crossing the Bloomberg right now, Donald Trump said to pick Jeff Sessions, Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama, to be his attorney general. Uh, again, reiterating that uh, headline crossing the terminal here, Donald Trump said to pick Jeff Sessions for attorney general. Senator Sessions met with Donald Trump yesterday uh, at Trump Tower in Midtown Manhattan, the uh, transition team releasing a statement thereafter, commenting on how positive the meeting was, but not going so far as to, to name the pick yesterday. Uh, Bloomberg reporting Jeff Sessions will be the next attorney general or Donald Trump's pick to be the next attorney general pending confirmation, of course. Uh, Jeffrey, when you look at what we know about Donald Trump from a a policy perspective, what we've learned here over the last 10 days or or so, what conclusions can you draw about dollar strength. What have we heard that, that gives you an indication of where it might be? In one word, reflationary, uh-huh. right? So, you know, that that is the view right now. And I think, you know, several people have commented on this already. We were in a very deflationary mindset, secular stagnation. And then suddenly someone comes along, which rips apart um, like the playbook and says, OK, now we are going to go for a reflationary wave coming out of the world's largest economy. And this is in a context where, let's say, in China, uh, we are seeing um, a, a secular downtrend in growth, but they still have the ability to actually, you know, reflate as well, albeit in a bad way. So now I think actually the onus is on Europe. Um, so in the UK, we've got the autumn statement coming up. There's been talk of minor reflation too. Can the Eurozone, right, can the Eurozone actually now come through with reflationary policies? If this happens, then this mindset for secular, for secular stagnation that we've had over the last few years, you know, might just start to turn around. But, you know, it's only one piece of the puzzle right now. And uh, talking about it is one thing. Implementation is another thing. Mm. Uh, I can be as guilty as any of having a, a short-term memory here. Going back to previous transitions, did we see the amount of market movement that we've seen uh, in this one? It has been extraordinary. And, and it seems like investors trying desperately here to process what's happening, what, what could be happening. How different is this time versus the past? It's very different. One, because the result was so unexpected. Uh, and and uh, two, it's so different because, uh, as people have highlighted, the president-elect, uh, he has no policy trail, right? And uh, some, it's it's a bit difficult to, you know, take what he said, you know, during uh, the campaign, uh, various sometimes, you know, things contradicted each other. 
and try to apply a unique economic philosophy there. But I think as um, the uh, nominees uh, start to you know, fall in place, we get a better sense of their philosophies uh, and we should have a better sense of you know, how the economic policy is going to be implemented up ahead. Uh, Jeffrey Yu with us with UBS. Good morning, everyone. Tom Keen in London with Mr. Yu. Uh, David Gura in New York. Maybe David Gurr transitioning this weekend to New Jersey. I'm not sure of that. <laughs> Everyone else seems to be doing it. Mr. Trump will migrate out to Bedminster, uh, New Jersey, perhaps for Midtown uh, Relief. Jeff, for you, we didn't have time to talk about this this morning, and I hope David will let me do this, <laughs> which is we know the euro was linked with Germany and, say, the peripherals, Spain, Portugal, Greece, etc. Earlier this week, literally the first chart I made in London was synthetic Deutsche Mark Italian lira. Italy has a very expensive euro, doesn't it? It does. Um, most of Southern Europe, uh, the low-growth countries, they have an expensive uh, domestic currency. And the only way for them to achieve competitiveness, as we've seen in Greece, um, is through internal devaluation. Very, very <clears throat> painful, and that drives populism. So I want you to get in the debate. Let me frame it. Holger Schmieding of Berenberg Bank saying, do what the Spanish did, do what the Irish did, reform now, and someone like Douglas, uh, David Folkerts Landau at Deutsche Bank saying, no, they're not going to reform, and this is an urgent matter to assist Italy towards some form of change given the linkage to Germany and the euro. Do you think the view is um, with this constitutional um, shift, well, the, uh, the referendum is required if Italy is to reform whatsoever. But what needs reform right now in Italy is its entire growth structure. You know, the problem plaguing Italy, people often talk about Italy's debt ratios. Italy's debt has actually been relatively sustainable, right? It's growth that has always been the problem. It's demographics in Italy that's been the problem as well. So, you know, those things, um, that takes time. So, yes, there can, can be a sense of urgency. But right now, ever since um, the U.S. election, I think the shift has suddenly, um, uh, the focus suddenly shifted towards, right, now it's actually not an attacking game where we push for reform. It's a defensive game suddenly. We mm -hmm. push back against the populist forces. That's a completely different strategy that the Eurozone elite, so to say, that they need to look at. Right. What happens if this, re this referendum in Italy doesn't right. pass? What happens to the Italian economy? Well, uh, at this point, um, it's going to, um, I wouldn't say uh, prolong uncertainty or anything, but people just think, okay, uh, nothing's ever going to change. You're not going to lift your trend growth forecast for Italy or any way whatsoever. Um, but uh, for the Eurozone as a whole, I think people are indeed concerned that this is another domino, the, the inexorable rise of populism, and it will lead on to potentially disruptive results next year in the French and German votes. We saw investors process that Brexit referendum in real time, perhaps influenced how they process the U.S. presidential elections, going here into the Italian referendum and these other uh, elections in Europe here in the next few months. What do investors know now that they, that they didn't know with those first two rounds? Always expect the unexpected. So what you thought was consensus, you know, what you thought that um, very, very accurate polling models and whatnot uh, were telling you, uh, you must have a hedge uh, the other way. So you, um, as you mentioned, see how Sterling performed um, uh, you know, overnight uh, when uh, the referendum results came out versus S&P futures, and for <coughs> example, almost exactly uh, the same. But then the reaction afterwards was quite similar, was, um, quite similar in the way that... Yeah. The FTSE was doing fine, and now the S&P is doing fine, too. I want to expand with you right now on the basic idea. And of course, you're with UBS Wealth Management. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say it's a more conservative tax yes. mm -hmm. to money management. Are people getting shellacked? That's an American phrase, Jeffrey. Maybe that's lost in translation, mm -hmm. Rachel. I, I'm not sure. Shellacked. Shellacked is they're getting clobbered, mm -hmm. pounded. Mm -hmm. Are people taking losses now, or is everybody pretty much 
out of the big trade of this big dollar move? Uh, actually, if you look at in both events, um, our clients, one, they were overpositioned in cash to begin with. You know, I think that that's a challenge that's been plaguing asset management in general over the last uh, few quarters or so. So much uncertainty out there. You don't know how it's going to play out. I'd rather just stay in cash. And it's yeah. sort of worked out, especially for UK clients uh, right. um, holding you know, dollar <clears throat> assets, for example. So yeah. what's, the level, what's the level of opportunity mm -hmm. now? in the foreign exchange world. Is, are you thinking big figures? Or are you thinking, I got to get to January? So right now in the FX world, we are seeing massive distortions in terms of Thank valuations, yeah. right? Mexican peso, you know, that, so how, where, where is fair value? Should be, you know, 17, 18, something like that. And so I, it's four so, big figures off, three big figures off. Absolutely. You know, sterling, where's fair value over the medium to longer term? Euro, where's fair value over the yeah. medium to longer term? If you look at it as an economy, an aggregate, right? So that gives you opportunities. And for our clients, we say, 80% of your returns are still going to be delivered on your strategic asset allocation. You take a five to seven year view. So in that context, then there can be something to capture from the currency side, depending on your base currency, of but course. But critically, yeah. the alpha mm -hmm. of big, well, we're going to have to come back on this. There's too much mathematics here for a Friday. <laughs> Jeffrey Yu with this UBS, Jennifer Jacobs, of course, reporting a number of minutes ago, 10 minutes ago. Uh, this is from two sources. The president-elect said to pick the senator from Alabama, Jeffrey uh, Jefferson Sessions, Jeff Sessions, for attorney general. I want to make clear that's from two sources. Uh, Jennifer Jacobs saying that uh, it is unclear if Mr. Trump has formally offered the job to uh, Mr. Sessions. We've offered the job of explanation of foreign exchange to Jeffrey Yu of UBS, um, who always gives uh, uh, clarity and, and, and helps with that. A strong dollar now, is it different than a strong dollar of the 80s pre-Plaza Accord or the strong dollar of the late 90s to 2001 associated as a Rubin dollar? Is this strong dollar different? I do think it is, and um, because the U.S.'s balance of payments and the exposures to the U.S.'s balance of payments are actually completely different. You know, around the time the Plaza Accord, and clearly current accounts adjustment um, was needed, and, and during the Rubin uh, phase, uh, the uh, U.S. cycle was out of sync with the EM cycle. This time around, uh, I'd say the main difference is the U.S. can broadly afford a strong reflationary dollar and not really care you know, about what happens to the rest of the world. I knew your answer. That was pretty <laughs> tricky on my part. <laughs> Jeff, you, if that's your answer about us, is it their problem? Is it Mexico's problem, Malaysia's problem, Turkey's problem? The theory is they're less exposed than you, I, they used to be. I don't buy it. Um, Turkey, uh, you hit the nail on the head there. You know, that probably, if you measure debt ratios as um, a um, uh, proportion or in a relative um, to uh, their funding abilities, probably one of the most oh. exposed currencies out there. So in that sense, um, I would say EM right now, use this honeymoon period where markets are not really gunning for your currencies right now. Look at your liabilities, look at your dollar exposures, try to hedge them or just try to generate some savings as quickly as possible. Jeffrey, you mentioned emerging markets and I, I think about the potential here for real change to trade policy in this country and, and, and globally. When you look at currencies, what, what could the potential effect there be if we see more protectionism, if we see the kind of tariffs that people have been talking about? Now, here's where it gets interesting, uh, because I do think there is an opening. So let's assume that the U.S. You know, does turn its um, uh, back uh, to uh, globalization. There is a unique opportunity for countries, especially in Asia and emerging markets, uh, to actually find their new trade accords and actually just trade amongst themselves. The U.S. is the biggest economy in the world, but it's not the only economy in the world, right? So, you know, they can actually generate demand that way as well. I don't think it's going to happen in the Eurozone, but this is why people are looking at the RCEP. They're you know, looking at ASEAN plus China, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, 
Thailand, India, and Australia. You know, that's a chunky economic block there put together. Not going to be the same rules as uh, what uh, happened through um, TTP or um, uh, what probably APEC had in mind general, but it doesn't mean that with the U.S. out of the game, globalization and FTAs, that's not going to be the way forward. And I was just saying, U.K. doesn't really have a Pacific border uh, right now, but why shouldn't the U.K. You know, join the RCEP mm. if it's so desperate for such agreements amongst like-minded countries and Eurozone? It's also sort of turning its back against globalization right now. So this is a challenge, but also represents an opportunity. Big trade summit this weekend uh, in Lima, Lima, Peru. Are you going to be watching that closely for, for signs? Uh, I think we will, um, but also um, the commentary um, and, and the body language um, between um, you know, the bilateral meetings between um, the Asian leaders and President Obama and um, probably some of the comments um, that... Uh, actually, less interesting the comments uh, from Obama, probably more interesting the questions um, mm. that Asian leaders will be asking Obama. Yeah. Yeah. I want, I'm going to put this out on Twitter, folks. Extraordinary chart of Turkish lira. And, Jeffrey, there's the mathematics of a curve on a log, which is called log mm -hmm. quadratic, I'm sorry, this is log moonshot. <laughs> it is a real depreciation of Turkish lira. We know the politics mm -hmm. of Turkey yep. and the interesting dual interest rate, et cetera. Mm -hmm. When do they scream uncle to Uncle Trump, Uncle Donald? Uh, well, yeah, so is it really uh, you know, something that the Turkish government can actually do about? If you look at what has fueled Turkish growth over the last few years, you know, borrowing in dollar debt, um, strong investment growth, um, there's been a lot of investment in the, uh, in the property sector as well. And now that's proving uh, to be difficult to uh, sustain. So uh, they need uh, reforms domestically right now to rebalance the economy in the same way um, you know, that, that China's been um, trying to rebalance its economy. Mm. You're seeing similar credit to GDP ratios. Uh, so again, use this window of opportunity to do so. Otherwise, yeah. it could be too late. Right. Two and a half standard deviations off a monthly chart. That is an ugly chart. Jeffrey, you thank you so much. Always good thank to you. see you. In London, he is with UBS uh, Wealth Management. David Gura, you know, the back and forth of whether we see appointments today. Do you see any reporting that we may see further appointments than the sources said on Jeff Sessions? I don't know. It's 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 funny. I mentioned that uh, we got a, a press release from the Trump transition team last night. Let me just pull that up quickly because it was so mm -hmm. extraordinary. I thought uh, he said here <laughs> this was this was after he met with Donald Trump yesterday, noting the meeting, saying, while nothing has been finalized and he's still talking with others as he forms his cabinet, the president elect has been unbelievably impressed with Senator Sessions and his phenomenal record as Alabama's attorney general and U.S. attorney. It's no wonder that the people of Alabama yeah. reelected him without opposition. So no clues like that. And maybe that's what we should be looking for. Uh, statements like that after these meetings, you know, if they, yeah. if they go well, an indication that it could be formalized shortly thereafter. I, I wrote a script looking for white smoke coming out of the Trump <laughs> Tower at some point. Uh, today habeas, habeas Secretary of State. Or whatever yeah, you know. whatever it is. There's the, the news flow has been fierce over the last uh, 10 days. Also fierce in his economics has been Michael Faroli of J.P. Morgan. He has been absolutely brilliant about identifying the glide paths to a new level, a new what's called terminal value, terminal rate, and this linkages of our economic growth or subpar economic growth to interest rates. All of that turned on its head with the Trump election, higher yield, stronger dollar. Michael Faroli, his head spinning as he gets to the acclaimed J.P. Morgan note, no doubt to be published at 6 o'clock tonight. Uh, help us here, Michael Faroli. Give us a head start. You talked about 3% GDP the other day. What will be the theme tonight of your J.P. Morgan note? 
Uh, Tom, you know, I would say we have the possibility of 3% GDP for a year or two if all of Trump's uh, uh, fiscal policy plans that he announced during his campaign were implemented. Yeah. So he, he talked about a tax cut that would run close to $500 billion a year, $6 trillion over 10 years, and then some pretty big numbers on infrastructure right. and defense spending. So that's that's kind of there in principle. Uh, I'm not right. a political person, but I, you know, I suspect we get something much smaller than that. So uh, 3% for a year or two seems right. possible, but we don't think that's the most likely. If I'm at one of your booth school seminars, University of Chicago, <laughs> the money question, Dr. Faroli, is simple. Do you amend your new level of potential GDP or the terminal value of GDP because of Trump election and Trump economics? We are not. Uh, so, Tom, when you talk about potential GDP growth, as you know, economists usually like to think about labor supply and labor productivity. And the two of those together kind of give you potential uh, potential growth. And we don't really see these policy changes fundamentally altering those things in the long run. So when I just mentioned these tax cuts and some of the spending, we think that could give you, you know, a nice short-run fill-up of, of activity, but not something that's going to really change the productive capacity of the economy. We actually see the risks, you know, when we talk about potential GDP. Perhaps there are two kind of offsetting risks. One is that, you know, some of these uh, more restrictive immigration policies could actually lower labor supply. Uh, and there are you know, an argument could be made uh, that some of the tax policies would increase labor productivity, particularly if you reduce taxes on capital income and corporate income taxes. In principle, that should reduce the cost of capital, increase capital deepening, and therefore productivity. Um, you know, we see those as kind of pretty small risks around the view that uh, longer-run trend growth is, you know, uh, we have it at a little bit below 1.5%, and we don't, you know, as I said, we're not changing based on uh, these kind of short-run uh, influences and disturbances to aggregate demand that would likely uh, come about through some of these policies. Michael Froley, pull back the curtain, if you would, and just talk about the complexities of, of forecasting for, for what this might look like in terms of what we know and, and what we're learning here uh, as this transition goes on. Uh, I imagine you're, you're playing with a lot of variables here. There's a lot we still don't know. Yeah, there are more than usual. So first, we don't know what the policy we're going to get is going to be. And then once we get that policy, there's still a lot of uncertainty among economists how different aspects of fiscal policy kind of ricochet through the economy. So uh, usually economists are just kind of dealing with the second part of the uncertainty. Uh, and the first, being a trained economist, I don't really know what's going to happen. In Washington, I read the papers like everyone else, and it seems like a, you know, a, a fog right now. So we're, we're dealing with, I think, two layers of uncertainty. Uh, and that's really just on the fiscal policy. Um, there are other aspects of, a, uh, of the new administration that could also impact uh, the economy, most notably trade uh, policies, and that is a big wild card, uh, the degree to which he uh, will follow through on some of the things he said in the campaign. Yeah, I think about that and the degree to which we've been talking about the contours of that fiscal policy package, how much will be tax cuts, how much will be spending on, on infrastructure. There hasn't been a lot of talk about trade, and I wonder if that leads you and others to believe that maybe we should take at face value what he said on the, the campaign trail. Are you able to forecast what, what uh, you know, a change in tariffs might mean for, for the GDP, for, for the economy generally? So that's a great question. You know, economists, um, being pro-free trade is almost uh, an occupational requirement. Um, but we see the benefits of trade as being long-run ones that deal with efficiency and, and efficient allocation of resources. We don't really think about 
benefits of free trade or, or even the impacts of free trade from kind of a short-run business cycle standpoint. Uh, and so we're kind of flying blind in thinking about if we were to suddenly, uh, you know, erect uh, uh, tariff walls, how that would impact the economy. We, we tend to think that it would be pretty disruptive because there are a lot of uh, domestic producers who are even now even more intertwined in global supply chains. Uh, you know, so as you thought, saw in things yeah. like the Tohoku earthquake, that you know, once those supply chains get disrupted, that can really kind of uh, uh, reverberate through uh, through a lot of sectors of the economy. So it's not clear that um, right. you know, I, I think there's a good case to be made that you know, sort of rapidly erecting uh, tariffs would uh, you know could be pretty disruptive. I, I mean, that really goes back to one of the one of the hearts of the selection and the linkage into your world, Michael Feroli is is the idea of new protectionism, and around that, the idea of neo-mercantilism, which can be defined eight ways, folks. It's a Friday. We're not going to do that. All it means is a more closed society, a zero-sum society, a non-growthy philosophy. Is that where we're heading? Uh, I don't know. Uh, so certainly there was a lot of chatter that, not just chatter, uh, during the campaign. Um, it seems like that has not been talked about quite as much um, since the election. Yeah. Another thing I would say is that th that doesn't seem to be a big priority of Congress, uh, uh, enacting new tariffs. Now, there are, you know, a lot of gray areas in terms of where Congress and the president can act in terms of trade policy. Um, but in, in things that are going to fall to Congress, uh, we don't see the, you know, a big sea change in terms of the attitudes toward uh, Toward trade. I mean, even with TPP, we are already seeing some of that step back uh, before the election. Um, so we're not expecting new mm -hmm. trade openness, of course. But but we don't see Congress kind of rushing to uh, to enact things legislatively that would that would tear down yeah. past um, treaties. Michael, to get us to our next section, are the dots moving? Everything else seems to be moving, including the ground under me. Are the dots <laughs> moving in real time? I don't. Uh, <laughs> Well, we still have a couple of weeks to go. Uh, Evidence. So things, can, <laughs> things can change. But, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that the dots are going to move. So on the one hand, some may choose, some on the committee may choose to incorporate some added fiscal thrust uh, into their outlook for mm -hmm. next year and beyond. Uh, others may not. It sounded like yesterday Terry Ellen was kind of taking a, a yeah. wait-and-see attitude. Um, on the other hand, we've had a, a I would say, um, kind of material tightening in, in some financial conditions over the past uh, week and a half. Okay. In particular, the dollar has moved, uh, yeah. last I checked, about 4%. And that's, you know, that does yeah. impact not only growth, but, but inflation and pushes them away mm -hmm. from the from the on inflation. Michael Feroli with us with J.P. Morgan. They put out an acclaimed note Friday afternoons, must read on the street. And I do hope, Michael, at some point your team puts their heads together about the conundrum of inflation-adjusted wages. Tell us about the dynamic. If inflation rises, rates up, dollar stronger, I get it all. If inflation rises, is it just a given that nominal wages rise as well, so the real wage stays equal, or even the real wage increases? Uh, I don't think it's a given. Certainly in, in the short run, and we've seen this over you know last few years, is when you get moves in headline inflation that can tend to be more volatile than, than moves in nominal wages that can depress uh, uh, real wages. But, you know, over the long run, theory would suggest that real wages should grow in line with labor productivity, which has been, um, as you know, not doing so well. And, 
and for that reason, perhaps the the kind of nominal wage bogey that that one should expect when things are, you know, operating as they should at full you know full employment might be quite a bit lower than it was you know what we used to think when we grew up when we when we thought maybe nominal wages consistent with two percent inflation should be four percent maybe now nominal wages wage growth should be more like three percent because uh, productivity growth just isn't the same as it was a decade or two ago just want to interject here we're getting some news crossing the bloomberg here about donald trump's pick to head the cia representative mike pompeo said to be uh, tapped by trump to head the central intelligence agency he is a congressman from kansas the fourth district in kansas which encompasses uh, wichita a graduate of harvard law school uh, worked at Williams and Connolly, Army veteran uh, as well. Again, Frank Pompeo uh, reportedly picked here by Donald Trump to be the head of the, the CIA. Michael, let me ask you about what we heard yesterday from Janet Yellen uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, Tom asking about inflation. What's your sense of, of how fast inflation will, will rise here in the new year? And, and did Janet Yellen say anything about the pace of rate increases in 2017? Um, so I, we've been looking for inflation to continue moving higher, we think. But it, Core PC inflation gets a two percent by year end. Uh, you know the markets obviously had a, a big um, change of heart or big change in views lately on inflation. I'm not sure really what uh, what would justify that, given what we see are likely going to be pretty modest changes in the growth outlook next year, given the, the fiscal policy backdrop. So uh, we could always see inflation break a little bit higher than that. We certainly are. I think there's a lot of evidence we're close to full employment. Um, but also, we just don't know what the composition of the Fed is going to look like in, in, in a year or two. And are they going to be more hawkish or dovish? I, I don't mm-hmm. think anyone has a good sense. But in terms of Yellen signaling for next year, she, uh, she stuck with the gradual pace uh, and once again defended it by mm-hmm. referencing what, what me and Tom were talking about earlier, which is this idea that neutral rates are probably pretty low and so that the distance they have to go to get uh, uh, the overnight Interest rate back to normal is actually not all that great. So she well, she said, you know, for 17, probably um, uh, not a very fast-paced pace of rate. But rates. you highlight the conundrum, whatever anybody's politics, which is Chair Yellen's normal, or Michael Faroli's normal, is not the president-elect's normal. He has a, a, a mandate, in you know, a clear mandate, to do better than normal, doesn't he? Well, he's talked about uh, getting 4% GDP growth, real GDP growth, um, as his normal. And uh, uh, <laughs> I wish him luck. Um, it's, it, I think there are some of these things that are very hard for policy to, uh, to change, demographics yeah. being the most obvious. Uh, but then even productivity growth is a bit of a mystery where new ideas and new technology come from. I, you know, I think we know there are certain policies that can encourage it, but, you know, uh, R&D tax credits and so forth and so on, but they're not guaranteed to deliver it and certainly not guaranteed to deliver it in a short uh, time yeah. span. So, yeah, Michael, thank yeah. you so much. Michael Ferroli on this Friday morning with great, great news flow uh, as well. He is with J.P. Morgan. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more 
at findyourindependentadvisor.com. David Gura in New York, Tom Keene in London, Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, we're getting reports now. James Bullard, president and CEO of the St. Louis Fed in Germany, speaking with our colleague Matt Miller, talking about low productivity. Let's hear what he had to say. It's really, really low compared to what it was historically. And, uh, you know, uh, what exactly is driving that is a subject of research. But, but just for purposes of thinking about the next two years or two and a half years, our approach is that probably that'll continue going forward. Probably we'll still see uh, slow productivity growth. Some of these programs, some of those fiscal change, uh, fiscal initiatives uh, might help productivity go higher, but we'll, uh, we'll see uh, as this thing develops. There's a lot of ifs in your statement. So, there a lot, you know, at this point, we're very early on, and it's, it's but hard, do you hard see to the, know if any of that will But do you see the risks uh, to the upside or the risks to the downside looking at, say, the dot plot in 2017? You know, even if a lot of, I know markets are talking about, well, maybe the Fed would raise rates faster than uh, previously expected. But it's, suppose we did that. That would be a reaction to faster growth. That would be a reaction to faster inflation. It would be appropriate monetary policy given those, those kinds of developments. So I think uh, I'd like to make a distinction between an appropriate monetary policy that's responding to things that are going on in the economy versus, oh, we're just raising rates uh, even though the forecast hasn't changed. So, um, so I think if we got into a, a faster rate rise environment, it would be for good reasons. Let me ask about some things uh, that we've seen in the markets. This dollar strength has been incredible lately on the DXY up over 100. Um, the euro weakness, I think this is the longest uh, streak of daily drops for the euro against the dollar in the history of the single uh, currency. Does that concern you, the speed with which we're seeing these assets fluctuate? Uh, there has been some volatility post-election. Uh, the 10-year has come up, the uh, 10-year yield has come up. But if you look at it in a bigger picture over the last year since the Fed uh, first made a move on the policy rate, you know, really we're coming back to levels that are consistent with uh, December 2015. And so that gives me some comfort that uh, uh, this, these kinds of prices are probably not out of line. So basically what happened was we raised rates in 2015. The dollar actually during 2016 actually fell and the uh, yields fell about almost 75 basis points. Contrary so, to what the Fed was trying exactly, to do. Which was uh, the opposite of what you would have thought. But now we're coming back up to those previous levels. So, And a lot of that is expected inflation, uh, which has been too low. And so to the extent it's been moving expected inflation closer to our 2% target, I think that's encouraging from a central banker's point of view. So at least as of today, looking at the data as of today, these moves are not, uh, not shocking. That was St. Louis Fed President James Bullard speaking to our colleague Matt Miller in Frankfurt earlier today. This is Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer RIA that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. I want to bring in Yelena Shulyatyeva of Bloomberg Intelligence. Joining us now, U.S. economist at, uh, at Bloomberg Intelligence. And Yelena, just react a bit to what uh, James Bullard had to say there, especially when it comes to productivity. Absolutely. So uh, a lot of uh, Fed speakers, not just James Bullard, but um, many of them uh, already told us that uh, they're really concerned about productivity. Uh, that's why they see potential growth uh, being lower uh, this time around. And uh, that's why the neutral 
rate uh, is lower. So uh, that's a big concern. And, and, and obviously, they, they hope that uh, uh, new um, policy, new fiscal stimulus that uh, hopefully we're going to uh, get at some time uh, next year will help with low productivity. But this uh, kinds of uh, stimulus, they, they take time. Uh, they take time because, well, first of all, they need we need the details and we need time to implement Okay. Uh, well said. Elena, what, what I think is the debate here, and folks, we had some great interviews on this. Good morning, Steve Major and the team at HSBC. Is this a one-off level change, whatever you're looking at, and then we sustain that level change? Or is it a one-off level ch- change? And we dampen back to where we were pre the election. Which is it? I think uh, it's uh, uh, it's more of a, a continued uh, growth and expectations for uh, the economy to uh, grow uh, at a higher rate. First of all, it's not just uh, the fiscal stimulus that will probably boost growth. Uh, remember, we're approaching full employment, and uh, the economy by itself will uh you know grow more um will grow faster just uh, just because of the fundamentals uh really uh income growth will pick up uh that's our forecast for next year and uh consumer spending will need to provide the growth breach yeah. until uh infrastructure spending kicks in do you have any increase in investment spending with your enthusiasm about the consumer I think uh, that will take time to materialize. Obviously, uncertainty uh, has uh, increased right after the election, but then it kind of fell. And uh, as, as as long as we find out more about the fiscal plan and uh, as the details uh, start to emerge, we're gonna uh, businesses will uh, feel better about investing, about hiring people. In the meantime, though, it's, it's yeah. all up to the consumer. Yeah, just very quickly here, how in line is James Bullard's sense of timing with, with Janet Yellen's from what we heard yesterday? Uh, in terms of... Uh, of, of hikes uh, for the new year. Hikes, yes. I, I think, uh, well, uh, James Bullard's thought, uh, we, basically we knew where he was, right? He told us where he was, one hike this year and then uh, flat thereafter. So uh, he's in line with uh, what the consensus of the committee is expecting this year, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, he's, he, I think he, he's not a voter next year, right? Okay. So, the- Elena, we'll have to leave it there. Elena Shuleva with us with Bloomberg Economics. finish our last half hour here in London. And David, I might mention we finished strong with Joachim Fels of PIMCO. We got a surprise last guest, which uh, really captures the fabric and emotion of this London post-Brexit. But to have Joachim Fels on is profoundly important after the key debate here in London this week. Joachim Fels, you have been one of the most articulate voices in thinking about the breakup of Europe. Holger Schmieding earlier this week with Barron Bank was adamant that the German model, everybody be responsible and do your domestic economy, can work. And David Folkert's Landau of Deutsche Bank just flat out disagreeing and saying Italy is in severe problem. 
and the IMF may have to come in and assist. You're one of the leading voices on this. Which way will this cut? Well, look, Tom, Holger Schmieding is a good old friend of mine. We worked together more than 30 years ago, but I, I disagree with him on this one. Um, and the reason is that I think the politics of Europe has changed over the past year. And what we've seen in, in the UK with the Brexit vote and in the US with uh, Trump being elected, I think that's just a taste of things to come in Europe. And the reason why Europe held together in the past and why each crisis was followed by a step towards more integration was simply that there was the political will to make this work and to hold together. And I think what's happening uh, in, uh, in, in countries like France, in the Netherlands and in Germany uh, is, means that the, this will to keep things together is no longer there. Governments, established governments yeah. are under pressure from uh, populist movements. And that's why I worry that if and when the next crisis hits, the euro may actually yeah. break up. David, I find this just extraordinary to hear this from Dr. Fels. Yeah, you, you saw it, though, in an acute focus, though, Dr. Fels, when you, when you looked at the, the images of President Obama in Europe this week, meeting with uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel, meeting with Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras in, in Greece. Uh, he's delivering one message. I think there are those who, who, who are open to hearing his message, but there is an awareness in Europe that, that times have changed. Yes, absolutely. And um, I think, you know, Europe is now out on its own because they cannot be sure that they still have an ally uh, in, in the United States. Uh, there are very tricky negotiations coming with the UK on, on Brexit. Um, and again, uh, governments are under pressure from populist movements. And as you know, we have a series of elections coming up next year. Uh, this December, we have the Italian uh, vote on the constitutional reform. We have an Austrian presidential election that may see a nationalist president who is anti-immigration and anti-EU come into power. And then we have the Dutch, the French and the German elections uh, next year in March, May and September. So. Uh, I think the risk premium on European assets is likely to rise, um, and it's not going to be comfortable. What is the Jakobfels outlook for, for odds of a recession? You mean in Europe? Yes. I don't think a recession is on the table because the ECB is very supportive. Um, what we've seen after the U.S. election is that the euro has weakened uh, versus uh, the dollar and some other currencies, so that will help exporters. No, I think Europe, the European economy is likely to bump sideways uh, in a range of around 1 to 1.5 percent growth. So recession is not the thing I worry about. What I really worry about is the fabric, yeah. the political fabric of Europe. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the political fabric. Without question, uh, Jakob, on surveillance today, the image, this was on Bloomberg Television, folks, and you'd be amazed, folks, how we try to get lucky with the video footage that comes in, and we fly with it in real time. And there we were, Jakob Fels, with waiting for the camera in there in my ears saying it's troops marching and this, that, and the other thing. And right as we went to uh, the tape, we had Chancellor Merkel standing alone saying goodbye to President Obama. Is it your sense, as one of our great watchers on Germany, that this is a changing of the tide for Europe and for Germany as we see a new president in the U.S.? Well, we'll have to see what, what his policies will be, but um, I think there is at least a possibility that you know, Trump will turn more, or that the U.S. will turn more inward-looking. Uh, Europe has always relied on the United States as, as, a, as a very strong ally. Um, Trump has seemingly good relationships to Russia, to Putin. Uh, I think that worries some people in Europe. 
So yeah, I, th I think it's a turning of the tide. We'll have to see mm -hmm. how, how U.S. foreign policy uh, uh, evolves. But I think what is clear is that Europe will have to take a tougher stance on its own. And I think it is clear to governments that they will have to raise defense mm -hmm. spending because this is something that, 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 that Trump wants to see. The tide turns under the gravitational force of uh, President-elect Donald Trump when it comes to the Federal Reserve. How do you begin to forecast out, think about what the economy, the U.S. economy, looks like with a radically re-envisioned Federal Reserve? Well, I think the, the, the key thing uh, to watch is what we will actually get in terms of fiscal expansion in the U.S. So uh, will we really see the big tax cuts that Trump has been talking about? Uh, will we see higher infrastructure spending? My guess is we'll get uh, both of it. And that means the landscape for monetary policy for the Fed has, has, has really changed. Um, I think it is, it is almost impossible to conceive a situation where you get very expansionary fiscal policy and a Fed that hikes interest rates more aggressively or even starts to, uh, uh, starts to, to, to reduce its balance sheet, which is something that is being discussed. Because that would be a scenario where you would see a very sharp increase in interest rates. And that could actually undo the consensus in markets that rates will be lower for longer. Um, it could drive the dollar to unprecedented highs. We're already seeing some of this. If you look at if you look at uh, uh, the DXY today, which mm. has, has moved above 101. So uh, that kind of policy would actually uh, fire back uh, because a strong dollar would be bad for the U.S. manufacturing sector um, and thus bad for the people who voted President Trump into office. Let's leave it there. Joachim Fels, thank you so much for a short visit today. Greatly appreciate your comments on Europe. Joachim Fels is with PIMCO. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.